1: monster house presents
2: monster talk is an independent podcast production of monster house llc you can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk we want to grow our monster talk audience and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on itunes positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment If you're able to look outside, and you're in America, you're probably seeing leaves turning red and yellow, as if the fires of the sunset and the gold of dawn have been captured in their crisp geometry. The nights grow cooler, the days grow shorter, and as we creep towards Halloween, some of us are thrilled with the prospect, even if others feel dragged towards the inevitable conclusion of the month. So it's fitting that today we're going to be talking about ghosts and anthropology with a researcher who's done much work examining the culture of ghost hunting in England. This topic fits nicely with some work we've been doing on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash monster talk. If you haven't been keeping up with that, our guest is Michelle Hanks. We really enjoyed talking with her and we will be asking her back because her research so closely overlaps with our own interests here at monster talk Manor. Okay. Enough for the preamble, let's get on to the amble.
3: Monster Talk.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, Dr. Michelle Hanks.
3: Yeah,
1: hi. Hi.
2: We're excited to have you on tonight. Karen tracked you down. Uh,
1: oh, yeah. I came across your book, uh, Haunted Heritage, the Cultural Politics of Ghost Tourism, Populism, and the Past. Yeah, very excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here.
2: This is going to be fun, I think. Uh, We we love talking about ghosts, as as, uh, people who've listened to the show a while know. And it's always interesting to get a different Mm -hmm. angle on it. But before we dig in Mm -hmm. on ghosts, let's dig in on you. Who are you and why are you here? What (laughs) (laughs)
0: Those are good questions. Um, Okay, so I'm Michelle Hanks. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I teach in the writing program at NYU. I'm a clinical associate professor there, so I mostly teach people how to write. I'm especially interested in working with STEM writers and helping them communicate science to the public. But as a cultural anthropologist, I'm interested in sort of the occult, the paranormal. I'm interested in the tensions between science and religion and disenchantment. Mm. Um, Yeah, so.
3: For a a long time,
0: my research, yeah, (laughs) yeah, all really good things. Um, Yeah, so my research focused on ghosts and paranormal investigators for a long time. Um, More recently, it's been focused on psychics and um, in New York City.
1: Michelle, we're really interested in talking about ghost tourism. Um, So, wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the history of the practice and how far this goes. Yeah, it's so that's that's such a big question, um, and I'll try to do it justice.
0: Um, so there's a really, really long history of ghost tourism, um, and when I talk about ghost tourism, what I tend to mean um, is travel, especially commercial travel of any tier, intended to encounter ghosts in some capacity, either ghost stories or um, maybe a firsthand encounter with a ghost. Um, and so you can trace this back, you know, to like the 1630s. Um, wow. I, like I don't and, and and you know, like there's a history of travel, certainly not commercial travel. Like I don't know if you guys have read Peter Marshall's book, Mother Leaky and the Bishop. it's it's amazing. it's the, he's a historian who's talking about this one particular ghost story um, in um Somerset, England, where this woman dies and she haunts her family, and it has to do with like who has property and who owns what. And it becomes this huge sensation. So like, as soon as the ghost is reported, people from the village are flocking to her house to sort of hopefully get a glimpse of her. Um, The bishop from, like, the local, like, church eventually comes and tries to get a glimpse of her. So, like, that, you could take that almost, I mean, Peter Marshall himself isn't interested in it as ghost tourism, but I think you could take it as an example of it. And if you look through, you know, like, sure. the, the 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s, there are tons of examples like that where um, a haunting is reported in the newspaper and people flock to the site in hopes of seeing it. Um There's like a really cool example from, um, I think, oh, I'm going to get, I'm probably going to get the year wrong, but I think it's like the 1840s um, in Sunderland in England. A woman dies and her brother is a sailor out at sea. Um, And, you know, she's, you know, being waked, I guess, in the church and her ghost is rising up every night to like go travel out to sea where her brother is a sailor. Um, And like thousands of people reportedly went to like went to the church to hopefully get a glimpse of her ghost Making that journey, um, so yeah, like the historical records, sort of full of moments like that.
1: That's fascinating.
0: There's there are tons of those kinds of stories. Like I, I know there's another one in um, like a London graveyard um, in the 1840s. Like someone apparently like rose from the dead, and thousands would flock there, um, hopefully to see it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I think that like when we talk about ghost tourism, or when I, I guess when I talk about ghost tourism, I'm thinking about something a little bit more modern. Even if there are these like historical ancestors to it. Um, I'm thinking about um, kind of commercial tourism, and I think it kind of emerges in the 20th century, like the mid to late 20th century. Um, and you can see early signs of it, like in the like in the in England in the early in the early 20th century. Like I think in 1913 there was a haunted house that was being sold, and a reportedly haunted house. And when it was being sold, like it was being marketed as a haunted house. They were like, you can use this as a guest house. Use the haunted to you know attract visitors. Um, <laughs> Which is really interesting, right? Like there's probably a time when ghosts weren't quite as welcome. Mm,
3: mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. But like by the 18, by the nineteen seventies, there are gazetteers gu- gu- and like guidebooks to hauntings across England and the UK. Um, and from there in the nineteen eighties, ghost walks or like haunted history walks start to form. Like there, you know, there are several still running now that have been running since the the nineteen not the eighteen eighties, oh my goodness, the nineteen eighties. And yeah, and it really, really takes off in the 90s and early 2000s, right? More and more haunted history walks start cropping up across England in the, like the 1990s. And then in the early 2000s, the emergence of paranormal reality TV, things really kick up. Um, and so what I call commercial ghost hunts start to be offered. And my field work, my research is mostly in England. So I know more about the English context than I do the US one. But like in England, with commercial ghost tours, there are like a handful of companies that offer, you know, for like 70 pounds or 80 pounds or however much you can spend the night um, in a haunted site and then hopefully during the, the course of that like eight hours you're going to amass evidence of the paranormal or ghosts or whatever you're hoping for so there's this real experiential component that emerges in the early 2000s which to me was really really interesting
2: yeah it's got that participatory yeah. aspect to it that's interesting
1: so it's such a long history in uh, England and, and Britain and Europe of uh, ghost stories so uh, it, but it's, it is so interesting to hear how far back this goes because I think a lot of people think, oh, this kind of thing was invented with uh, ghost hunters and it's the advent of reality TV shows. So that's really interesting to hear how far back it it, uh, goes into history.
2: I see a lot of parallels because it's easier to track them with – television shows and pop culture we we've frequently talked about how monster movies can influence people's experiences in the world and maybe shape the way they experience what might be a monster to them um i'm wondering though if if maybe we've overlooked at least uh, maybe i've overlooked i should be take this my own responsibility but (laughs) the the impact of the Edwardian and Victorian ghost story popularity. Like, I wonder how that tracks along with the rise in ghost tourism.
0: I think that's such an interesting thing. Yeah. Like, cause like, during, like, the Victorian period, there were all, there's, I mean, and the Edwardian, there were these great, really rich ghost stories. What's interesting is that, to me, when when you read a lot of them, it feels like the evidentiary basis is kind of different, right? Like, with reality TV, it's all about proving the reality of ghosts, right? Like, they, they're going to prove it to you. It's not just that they're going to tell you a cool ghost story. Like, like if you're reading, like, The Christmas Carol, it doesn't really matter if the ghost is real. Like, it's that's not kind of the point of it. Whereas, like, mm. on, I don't mm-hmm. like, Ghost Hunters, it definitely is. Um and that feels like yeah. a big difference in what <laughs> kinds of tourism it produced. And so like I think for me like that link between like the reality TV in the early aughts um and the emergence of like really concerted commercial like overnight investigation stuff that that to me is really interesting. But I think definitely, I think there's definitely literature in Scotland for sure about how ghost stories like, like Sir Walter Scott's ghost stories, how they were used to attract people to certain destinations in Scotland. Not necessarily because you were going to see the ghost, but because, oh, isn't it cool? He mentioned this place in a ghost context and you can actually go there.
2: Yeah, we, we, you know, we do the Christmas ghost stories every year. And it's like, I I can't, things like uh, there's, there's certainly ghost stories where it's all, you know, parlor you know, sort of almost like a little mystery, but then you get things like the upper birth where it's very specifically, they're trying to get evidence of the ghost or, you know, Karnaki, the ghost hunter. Anyway, it's it's more to explore. We'll get, we'll dig into that some more in further episodes, but it's not really why we asked you on. So I uh, kind of sort of sidelined you or uh, ambushed you came out of the shadows with a ghost question that you weren't ready for.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, So much, so much to unpack here, but Michelle, To begin with, we're interested in finding out how you became interested in ghost tourism Mm -hmm. and paranormal investigations, particularly in the UK. Okay. So that's, that's, there are two answers to this
0: question, right? Like I think with most people who study anything, there are two answers. Like one is like the kind of personal thing where, and one is the sort of scholarly one. Um, Personally, I've always liked ghost stories like I just I love a good ghost story. I think in part like I was born on Halloween, like I've just always liked the spooky. Um, So I was kind of primed for this, Um, but like in a more scholarly serious vein. um, In terms of anthropology, I'm really interested in sort of the interplay between experts, science, knowledge, enchantment and secularism. And so when I was thinking about research, when I was starting grad school, um, ghosts, the emergence of ghost hunting, the emergence of the paranormal investigating, all of that in England was really interesting to me. Um, In part because for so long there have been these narratives within like secularization theory or um, within like ideas about disenchantment that we're getting more rational or getting more scientific. We're banishing superstition. Um, And in anthropology, there's been really good work to kind of show the fault lines in that by looking at other cultures and looking at how like secularization doesn't work in certain contexts, it doesn't work, it, how people resist it. Um, and there was less attention in the early 2000s to sort of how how that was happening in the so-called West, like like how people in cultures that were supposed to be secular and rational and scientific, how they were grappling with these things. So for me, the emergence of sort of paranormal investigating, like the, like the popularization of it in the early aughts was really, really interesting. Like for me, Um, this idea that like, oh, why are people in a country that's so scientific, that's so modern, why are they doing this? Um, So that became Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, that that was one of the things that was interesting to me. And I picked England rather than the US um, in part because of the kind of current climate in England. Um, So if if you looked at England in like the early aughts, you've got on the one hand, academic parapsychology. It's alive and well in England in a way that it's not in the US. Like, University of Edinburgh, which is so interesting, right? Like, there are universities offering PhDs in parapsychology, that it's, like, kind of a vibrant research field. So, I was kind of interested in that. I was interested Mm -hmm. in, like, the kind of legacies of, like, the Society for Psychical Research and um, the Ghost Club and all of that. that Like, there are these Mm -hmm. people who are, you know, like, lawyers and, like, accountants, but on the side are really, like, investigating ghosts. Like, I'm like, that is so interesting. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. and then like this mass engagement from, um, non-experts, often working class people who want to go out and hunt ghosts, coupled with like an ongoing spiritualist community. Like those four factions were so interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of what drew me to England.
2: Got, um, a lot of books on haunted geography and, uh, Psychogeography, and then straight up just tourist books, and a lot of them are haunted Britain, haunted London, haunted England. Uh, is is Great Britain especially haunted, or is is that just maybe a, a niche publishing thing? I've fallen trapped to what?
0: <laughs> it's you you haven't fallen trap to it. It's very real. Um, they have more. They have a disproportionate number of these books. Um, and it's not just like the big ones, right? Like Haunted Britain or like you can go to any small town in like Cornwall and they'll be like, here is a tiny little locally published book of our ghosts. Like it is, it's like a whole, it's, you're not imagining it. Um, I wish I had a good answer to this question. I've been thinking about this question for 15 years and I don't have a fantastic answer to it, but I'll take you through thoughts of that. Sure. Is, yeah. Well, What's your
2: thoughts now? That's fine. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: um, yeah. So I don't know that I think. It has more or less ghosts than anywhere else. Like, if you look at like ethnographic literature on other countries, other cultures, there are tons of places where people have regular contact with spirits, right? Like the literature in Vietnam is a really good example of this. Like there's so much literature on people's relationships with ancestors, with roaming ghosts, with ghosts of different wars, like there's so much on it. Um, but I don't think I, I, you wouldn't find a comparable thing like a comparable body of literature like haunted Vietnam or come to Vietnam and see the ghosts um so it's like a really specific relationship England has with its ghosts the best way I can think of it um is that it kind of plays into the national self-image um right yeah like it's a England's a country England and to some degree like Britain right like they're it's it prides itself on having a long, long history of being sort of an island nation, um, the really, really long history. Like, one thing I encountered a lot when I was doing my field work, um, like, I was talking to someone who had a ghost who lived in her house. Um, and she, we were talking about it, and she said, like, how did you, I have a quote I want to, she said it's the, like I was sort of asking her what it was like to live with a ghost. Like, did she feel OK about it? Did it make her nervous? Like, Because I, I was sort of I was fascinated by this. She didn't know who the ghost was. It wasn't like her mom. It wasn't like, you know, someone from like the Civil War. Like it, she just didn't know. But um, she said it was the cost of living in an old country. And like, that's such a great evocative way of describing it. Um, it's so poetic. Yeah. Yeah, But I would hear that again and again, not necessarily as poetically, but like people would say to me, oh, it makes sense. You came to England to study ghosts. In America, you wouldn't have any ghosts. You're too new. And obviously the logic of that is so like, like, how does that work? Right. We, people have lived in North America forever, but uh, not forever. But you yeah,
1: know, long time. I hear the same thing about Australia, too. People say, oh, not as many ghosts there as there, there are in America or England. Yes, yes, yes. And
0: in, in Australia, I mean that's gotta be yeah, like with with like that's it's such a remarkable claim to make.
2: A quick insert here. Science tells us that humans have been in North America for a long time, with estimates pushing towards twenty thousand years, but certainly over fifteen thousand. And Australia has been inhabited for more than forty thousand years. In this week's episode and in next week's episode, we discuss ghost stories and the dominant cultures talk about the oldest ghost stories. It's referencing stuff that's only a few hundred years old, and sometimes I forget to say something about that, and I just wanted to have it on the record that we here at Monster Talk are all very well aware of this discrepancy, and it's indicative of an inherent colonialism that's built into the framing of these kinds of stories. We didn't break out of our discussion to have that discussion, but we are all aware of it, and speaking for myself, I'm increasingly trying to grapple with how much of all of this weird stuff that I love so much has that element of colonialism baked into it. But that is a topic for another time. Now let's get back to this interview.
0: So part of it is like it's this tie to nation-ness, but it's also this like okayness with their kind of bloody past, right? Like they're they don't have to grapple with, you know, having killed clo- like people like original inhabitants. Like mm, there's mm-hmm.
3: this
0: So I think I think that's part of it. Like that it kind of fits into this national self-image, this idea that they are inhabitants from the past, um, you know, that occupy the present. Mm-hmm. because one way to think about ghosts right is that they're you know sort of ancestors like in a lot of cultures if you're visited by a spirit or a ghost it's someone you know and in England it's not necessarily true it's it's often someone you don't know but by virtue of the encounter you feel a tie to them so i think i think there is this way in which ghosts kind of function is like this
1: part of nation making
2: um oh yeah it's part of the national identity here yeah yeah,
1: yeah i think that really makes sense
3: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
2: physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
3: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
1: Blake and I have done a lot of research and investigation over the years into ghosts and psychics as well, to uh, write articles for magazines and for books and for the show as well. But you're very interesting in that you've done this from a scholarly angle. And so as a social anthropologist, we're wondering how do you approach these topics academically? Um, So for me,
0: first and foremost, as an anthropologist, I'm not interested in questions of whether or not ghosts are real. anthropologists tend to try to approach things through the lens of cultural relativism so like kind of looking at a a culture's practice practices in its own terms Um, and that's very much what I do with ghosts Um, like in my personal life I might be deeply interested in whether or not ghosts are real or not real and have my own ideas about it but I try to keep that pretty pretty separate from my research and so in terms of difficult to do Yes, definitely. Especially because when you're doing field work with people who are really invested in the reality or unreality of ghosts, there's this impulse to want to either prove things mm-hmm. to you or disprove things to you, um, which can be weird and uncomfortable. Like I remember I was with a medium in Manchester and I was trying to interview him and he kept being like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting a spirit. Is it your grandfather? And I was, like I'm like I have I can, I just want to ask you my questions. Oh my goodness, um. So that kind of impulse—it's really interesting ethnographically in retrospect, but in the moment it was really awkward. Um, mm. but in terms of methods, um, as a cultural anthropologist, I rely really heavily on participant observation. Um, So, and Clifford Geertz, kind of famously called that like deep hanging out, which is both kind of cheesy and fun, I think. Um, It's the idea that if you want to study a culture, you have to try to ingratiate yourself, be part of the culture to the degree that they're willing to welcome you. Um, So you do formal things like surveys and interviews, but like mostly you try to hang out and become part of the scene. So for me, that meant participating in paranormal investigations that were both like, you know, tourist, but also non-tourist. So I, 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 I hung out and I talked to and interviewed and got to know over time um, paranormal investigators, people they worked with, mediums they worked with, um, and just try to sort of become part of their social world. Um, And I think the advantage of that kind of method is you get to see the messiness of something in a way that you don't necessarily get to do if you've just interviewed one person once or, um, you know, conducted a survey. Both, Both are great important research methods. They just Bring to the surface different kinds of evidence and different kinds of details. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's how I
1: approached it. Um, very interesting.
2: So how does ghost tourism in particular fit into this? The larger idea of what we've been calling dark tourism. I I, I know that like we, we've talked before about uh, Jack the Ripper and some other cases, and and I believe if if I remember correctly, they were actually doing tours of uh that area even while the murders were still happening like not like at the same minute but i mean like during the same you know contemporaneous period of time
1: at that time
0: yeah yeah Yeah, i read that too which is absolutely wild and kind of not that surprising like if you think about princess diana's death and like how quickly people made that a site but yeah in terms of ghost tourism i think i've seen some some tourism scholars explicitly consider um like ghost tourism, part of dark tourism, um, and it makes sense, right? I think like one of the bigger definitions of go- of dark tourism is right, like tourism to sites of um, death, dis- dis- death, disaster, and suffering. I think, and so yeah, like ghost tourism could definitely fit within that umbrella. Um, and there is something the critiques of dark tourism, right? Like the concern that it it, it sensationalizes something really horrible and sad. I think those. Some of those criticisms are very reasonably lo- they are very reasonably applied to ghost tourism. I think what distinguishes ghost tourism at least some forms of ghost tourism is the sort of emphasis on almost spiritual transformation. Like there are people who will buy something like a commercial ghost tour, right, where you're spending the night in a haunted place. And like the death, I mean, there's always death if you're talking to a ghost, right? Um,
2: it is kind of a prerequisite, yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Unless <laughs> well,
0: something yeah. really surprising is happening. Comes along
3: with
1: the job.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
0: yeah, yeah, like the, it's like it's there, but it's not necessarily like there. are ghosts I've seen people get in contact with who just kind of died of old age and are there to have a chat. And the emphasis mm-hmm. for the people talking to the ghosts seems to be more getting proof that ghosts exist, proof that there's an afterlife, proof that um, there's something outside of what we understand about the natural world. Mm-hmm. Like there's this kind of search for truth, search for spiritual encounter. That's part of it that I think distinguishes it. I think it, it's 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 definitely a cousin of dork tourism, but I think it's an uneasy cousin because of that. Um,
2: you know, we've talked about that, like, I think, on the show, the, the idea that... Um... Like, on the one hand, ghosts are scary. We're scared. We don't want to be bothered while we're sleeping. We don't want to be surprised by something weird or mysterious popping out of a wall or out of a shadow. On the other hand, if ghosts are, are a continued consciousness existing after death, that's really a powerfully positive message. So, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, there's like, yeah, it can be spooky, but it could also prove. You know eternity, so I, I, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. But I, I am curious mm-hmm. though in your research, this is not directly related to what I was just yakking about. But <laughs> when when you're like talking <laughs> to people after these tours, does does part of your research include asking them? I know this is really a hard question, but why are they doing it? Like, what 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 is their motivation? Like, how do you seek out? information about people's motivations without effect I mean like that seems one of those observer effect is going to be really difficult if you're trying to find out that
0: yeah so there are kind of two sets of people I came to know through my research one were sort of people I knew on a more long-term basis they were people who tended to be involved in paranormal investigation for many many years they weren't necessarily involved in ghost tourism but maybe they are like local teams sometimes did a public event, so they kind of ran a ghost tour, but like maybe once every two years. For them, I got to understand their motivations, I think, reasonably well. And in part of it was just kind of knowing them over time. The other set of people were people who I might know for a night, and I might meet up with once or twice afterward, but there was kind of a a time limit. In terms of what I found out about why they're interested, there were two big things. For some people, they had lost a loved one, and they wanted to know about whether or not ghosts were real, whether or not an afterlife was real. and so some of them had attended spiritualist churches beforehand. Some of them had visited mediums and they were kind of uncompelled by that. And they were attracted to either ghost hunting, paranormal investigation, ghost tourism, because they they perceived it as more scientific and more rigorous, more evidence, more evidence based. Um, so they were hoping it would kind of give them insight that they hadn't received. And so some people start that way and then end up in a very different place. Like one of my closest interlocutors um, started that way her dad died and she was like she was really like it was a very traumatic event for her even though he was an older guy it just it just it was you know it was upsetting for her and you know she started out really wanting to prove that ghosts were real and over time she became kind of pretty skeptical and she was like i'd love for them to be real i'd love that but it's probably not the case the other set they're interesting so on the one hand they really like science they really like technology on the other hand they're really skeptical of orthodox knowledge orthodox science. Um, they think there's more to the world that they don't know. And they don't think they think scientists are either like actively not pursuing it or just because of research funding aren't pursuing it. And so it's up to them to go out and kind of gather this evidence. And so that, that's another segment, people who are just kind of motivated by a desire to know kind of like, is there something paranormal? Is there something beyond the scope of what we know? Um, And sometimes they've had kind of like uncanny encounters, not like hauntings per se, but just something unusual um, that sparks it. But like it's driven by
1: this kind of desire to know. Yeah, those are the two big things. Mm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. I think those are lots of the, the kinds of stories that we've heard from people over the years as well. Just you know, doing things on the scale that we do. We'd like to hear a little bit more about your findings, and you've been doing this for quite some time, Um, so it's a very general question, but what kinds of things have you learned about people who engage in in paranormal investigations um, and, and these kinds of related activities?
0: So one of the things I, I'm and probably I'm, I'm I'm most interested in it right now. So it's kind of shaping what I'm going to say. But um, one of the things I find really interesting, when I started this project, like I don't know, 2006, I'd have interview guides. Like I'd I'd be planning to meet people, and you know, one of my questions is, do you believe in ghosts? Another one was, when did you come to believe in ghosts? I was treating belief in this very fixed way. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in doing that. Like, if you look at a lot of literature on the paranormal, right, belief is treated as this sort of obvious category, like, oh, you believe in something. And like, what that actually means is really murky. And of course, there's a long history in anthropology of critiquing that, right? Like, how do we assess belief? It's so interior. Is belief even a universalizable category? And anthropologists who study other cultures have turned to other language to think about this. So a friend of mine, Tim Landry, who studies people's practice of a in Benin, um, He talks about trust. People don't believe in spirits. They come to trust spirits over time. So like one way to deal with the question of belief is to kind of replace it with other language. And so when I was when I was doing this research, one of the things that really struck me is that I would I would talk about belief and no one would want to believe in anything. Like they were like, belief is for idiots. Belief. You have to be kind of dumb to believe in something. My informants would tell me all the time. And so over the course of the research, one of the things that became really interesting to me is that I. Very few people I met, especially people who were involved in paranormal investigation, had, had stable relationships with the object of their inquiry. By that I mean they had no confidence in what they were trying to find and they had no confidence in what kind of relationship they had to it. So I don't know if I'm, I'm explaining this in a kind of weird way. Like when you think about ghost hunters, like you think about people who are convinced ghosts go out. They're convinced ghosts exist. They go mm-hmm. out, they find evidence, and it proves to them what they already thought. Yes, yeah, like that's like a really pervasive assumption about them. And I, I I think I shared that. I think I had that. And what I found is that the practice of doing paranormal investigation for so many people actually led to really profound doubt. Um, and that doubt for me is the most interesting mm. thing I discovered. That mm. like people, even people who go out ghost hunting every weekend, like their relationship with the object of what they're studying, if ghosts, the paranormal, whatever they call it, it's so much more tenuous. It's so much more flexible. It's so much more changing. So maybe, like, an example would help. Like, so I was someone, one of my closest informants, he desperately, he was like, yeah, I don't think ghosts exist, but it'd be cool if I found the evidence. And so one night, I couldn't go to a particular event, and he texted me at, like, 3 a.m. I was like, you have to come talk to me tomorrow. I have, I'm convinced. I saw proof. I I was like, okay, this is great. This is the kind of thing as an anthropologist you're waiting for. And I get there, and he's like, no, I, I, I was wrong. You know, I... I thought in the moment I was, I thought I saw something, I thought I had a photo, but, you know, looking back on it, it's just it's blurry, I didn't do the right thing. Like, he was full of, like, self-recrimination almost. Like, he was like, I just didn't act as a good scientist would. I didn't look at the environment, I didn't take enough pictures, I didn't and so he was in the aftermath, angry at himself, angry at his teammates, but he wasn't convinced. And, like, he wasn't an anomaly. Like, that was the story I'd hear over and over again. People would see something during an investigation and be so excited and so, like, oh, my God, it's a ghost. Um, But then, you know, like, on the car ride home from the investigation, they'd be like, ah, oh, well, that wasn't really enough, was it? I mean, it was cool in the moment, but what does it really mean?
3: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: And so, like, yeah. that kind of ambivalence, to me, that's so interesting. Um, And so one of the things I've been trying to do in my work is try to chart, like, what produces that? Like, how do you end up in a position where you're having such an extreme state of doubt? Because, you know, scholars have shown it's it's not hard to convince yourself something's real, right? People, like, there are psychological yeah. mechanisms, um, practical ones. So, like, why can't they almost? So, yeah, like, the presence of doubt, the pervasiveness of doubt, that was, for me,
1: the most interesting thing. That's, yeah, that is really interesting. And I think just on a personal note, my husband, does a lot of the kinds of things that 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 we do, uh, but he really started from a position of being a believer, and over time, I think encountered a lot of those kinds of uh, experiences and situations that you're talking about here to eventually become a skeptic. I think that is a path that a lot of people do take. I think um, Blake, in some regards, has taken that same path too, yeah uh, maybe yeah. more in in terms of religion, um but yeah, I think that is it is something that we see a lot, and it, it is just really interesting when when people do you have this self-doubt and and have these you know falsifying experiences? Be very yes. powerful and it's hard. Like it's really hard.
0: I would see people, like people who over time, I became, I think, you know, friends with outside like and they would just be almost like tearing their hair out after an investigation. Like I had this experience in the space of the investigation, but now, in the sober light of day, i don't I don't think that made sense. But why in the moment did I think it made sense? what What do I do with this now? it's It was very it was a very destabilizing thing <laughs> and kind of yeah. And also hard for them, like hard. Like I think all, most people I met would have preferred, you know, they take a picture of a ghost and it look like a person and it just be totally perfect and convincing, but.
3: You oh know, yeah. that Real
0: happen. cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, you, you've been doing work in anthropology, but you've also been doing work in writing and communication. And I, We've talked a lot on this show that how important narrative is, like that none of these monster stories would exist without the structure of story itself. And I guess what I'm curious about is, do you think the places that are successful with their ghost tourism, is that tied to the kinds of stories that are there? Or do you think it's tied to the sort of the feel of the place? Like, what, what do you think is probably the more... Uh, effective mode of like getting a place to have a successful ghost tourism business
0: so that's such a good question and i don't i'm gonna have an unsatisfying answer because i think both are equally productive yeah. oh, well, that,
2: that could be the answer i mean it, it's, <laughs> and it probably is always going to be some kind of complicated mix right I, I just i wonder yeah i'm just curious about that
0: definitely like there are there there are sites um that just have fantastic ghost stories um Like, I don't know if you guys, you probably know the story of the Romans in the basement at the the treasurer's house in New York. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's very tied to the the stone tape theory stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's just like a fantastic ghost story, right? A plumber goes, an apprentice plumber goes into the basement, hears music soldiers walk out of the wall across the room and into the next wall. No one knew it was a Roman road. It turned out to be a room. Totally creepy. Totally great. Like it has a good <laughs> beginning, middle and end. And it's really satisfying because of it. And so, you know, even though, like so today, like the treasurer's house in York is owned by the National Trust. It, they, they market that ghost story enormously. The basement it takes place in is not at all spooky. I mean, it looks like a basement. Like it's, I mean, I guess basements are sort of inherently spooky, but it's not, it's like, it's like a room. True. And, you know, but by virtue of that story, they're able to offer tours um, just to that basement. I mean, they're not super expensive, but like for an extra 10 pounds, someone will take you down there where you can see where Harry Martindale saw the soldiers go across the room. So even though it's not creepy, even though it's not really part of the destination image of the house as a whole, that story has made it like this great site for ghost tourism. Um, and that's that story is such a, hum, like such a touch point for tourism in York in general. Um, so even though it doesn't look spooky, it's, it's a good story
1: to change topic. Michelle, you were born and raised in the United States and yet here you are doing research in the UK. Are you coming across any differences between the ways that ghost tourism and, and paranormal investigations are conducted in these two places? You, do you really spot any differences or do you think that there's some kind of diffusion where what's done in the UK has come over here as, as well? That's a good question. I think I think in terms of paranormal investigation,
0: the, during the time where I was doing the bulk of my research, and I should say, like I've been on one or two ghost hunts in the United States, I have not done field work in the United States. Like I, like I, I'm, I'm not super well poised. So a lot of what I know comes from ethnographies, like Mark Eaton's um, really great book, Sensing Spirits. Um, One of the things that struck me as different in the early 2000s is like the place of secularism and religiosity in the two forms of ghost hunting. I get the feeling. And I again, I don't I'm a little bit speculating um, that I think in England it was more thoroughly secular. Like people who I worked with were insistent that this not be religious, that this not be spiritual. Um, Whereas if you read about ghost investigation at the time in the U.S., people were doing prayers and, like, having, like, sacred lights in their circle. Like, there, there was just more blurring, I think, maybe with the New Age than there was in England at right. the time. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's shifting. Like, I, I've talked, there's um, a graduate student at Robert Gordon University named Dylan Jones, who's doing, like, sort of a sociological study of ghost groups in England. Um, and he sees more of that now. And he kind of chalks it up, I think, to, like, the role of reality TV and, like, the homogenizing effect of, like, the reality TV shows coming out of the U.S., Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's maybe one difference. I think another difference is how, how pervasive, and this is sort of in a different vein, but how pervasive the ghost tourism is in the two countries. Um, like the U.S. has ghost tours, of course the U.S. does, um, but they're nowhere near as pervasive and like the infrastructure for ghost tourism is nowhere near as, um, elaborate. Um, like I remember a while ago I was teaching a class, um, this wasn't even, this was at a university I worked at, like- nine years ago um and i really wanted us to go on a ghost hunt like one of the overnight ones i write about um in england and i just couldn't find a company that offered regular like overnight ghost tours and i lived in ohio at the time i was in cleveland and there's there was nothing like that whereas in england there's no shortage in most regions of the country like if you want to do an overnight ghost hunt you can do an overnight ghost hunt um so there's kind of like a difference in the extent of the tourism i think also the degree to which um mainstream heritage organizations embrace ghosts. Like in England, it's so pervasive, right? Like the Tower of London offers ghost walks and, um, you know, the fall seasons. So I think so does Hampton Court Palace. Um, so like really elite, really prestigious, like cultural institutions. Whereas I can't picture the US doing something similar. I'm not aware of similar cases, at
1: least. Yeah, I, that's really interesting. I've seen something similar in Australia. I've gone to a lot of places and uh, historical places and talked with historians and curators and asked about ghost stories. And, and they don't want any of that. They want to keep that line uh, really distinct between history and folklore and stories. And they just don't want to talk about those kinds of things. So it's interesting to hear about it being embraced in England. It is. Yeah. And I
0: think it goes back to like, I don't know, countries like Australia and the US have such different relationships with their histories. I, I, think, that's, I think that's, to my mind, that's got to be a big part of it. No, that makes
1: sense.
2: The truth is we're running a little short on time right now, but I know I want to talk to you further because one of the framing things you said at the start were, was your interest in uh, the discussion around uh, enchantment and re-enchantment. Uh, and I have, I've have been doing a lot of reading around that and would love to talk about that more. So we'll stay yeah, we'll in touch. To yeah, <laughs> so
1: much, so much oh. to talk about. You have uh, listened to our show where our apologies, Um, But you're familiar (laughs) with our final signature question. I would like to ask you, what's your favorite monster? I had so many thoughts. Um, So hard to
0: pick. And everything from sort of like Elmo and Sesame Street has run through my mind, but I think I'm going to go with Medusa. Like, she's, I mean, like, (laughs) big difference. (laughs) Yeah, Elmo to Medusa. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm going to say Medusa. I I love. I grew up loving stories about Medusa. I love feministry imaginings of Medusa. I love her as a piece of fiction, and like like I love. It's yeah, she's really fun, and she serves so many purposes.
1: Right, I don't think we've had Medusa. Before.
2: No, I don't think so. so. She she began it as an intoxicating beauty, uh, and in the end, she was hideously ugly. But you know, she had that amazing power to turn people to stone. I just I think that's. Like, don't don't you think people were like tempted, they wanted to see her? Like they really, you know, (laughs) like like they wanted to, (laughs) even though they knew it was...
0: Yes and no. (laughs) How, yeah, how could you not want to look? Yeah, it's...
2: Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. uh, And Yes,
1: uh... that was really interesting and definitely, uh, yeah, um, in line with all of our interests. Very cool.
0: This was so fun. Yeah, thank you.
2: We're going to come back to you. We're going to have to talk to you more because I've got so many questions running through my head right now that I want to chat about, but we just don't have the time tonight.
1: Yeah, this should come out just in time really for the Halloween laid up. So this is perfect. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) That's spooky season. Who
2: doesn't love that? And birthdays. Happy happy birthday. Happy birthday for
1: Halloween. Thank you.
2: All right. Have a good night.
1: (laughs) Yes, you too. Bye. Thanks, Michelle. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Blake.
2: Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Michelle Hanks about her research with ghost tourism in England. We'll definitely be asking her back because her other research around the ideas of disenchantment and reenchantment is a topic of profound interest to the show. One more quick note. As we were finishing up this interview, we were running a little bit short on time, and I failed to make a comment around that last bit of discussion on whether or not heritage sites encourage ghost stories in the United States. There's definitely a time when this was less common, but prior to the pandemic, my colleagues in the, I don't know, what would you call it, the pro-reality activism world, had been noticing an uptick in the number of museums and parks that were cashing in on that creepy commerce theme. Everything got scrambled during the past couple of years, so I don't know how long it'll be before anyone can make a fair assessment of what's a real trend and what's just noise. But it surely felt like more heritage sites in the United States were heading in that direction. And I apologize for not mentioning it during the interview. If all goes well and we get Michelle back in the future, I will want to follow up on that with her. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Big Picture Science. Good job, Brain. And My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for making us a part of your listening life.
1: in a Monster House presentation.